1: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books of Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Aina Rabinovich-Fox, who is the author of Dressed for Freedom, The Fashionable Politics of American Feminism. So Ana, thanks for being here with me today. Thank you. And I'm, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> uh, could you talk a little bit about how this book came about, how you got interested in um, American sort of feminism and fashion and writing about it?
0: Sure. Um so this book started as my dissertation and um when I was like looking for um for a topic uh, I knew I wanted to write about feminism and the women's movement um and one of the things that kind of like bothered me as someone who always thought about herself as a feminist um is the fact that um the movement has um, kind of like a bad PR, right? We have all those, I'm not a feminist, but because I like to wear high heels, because I like to wear lipstick. And there is this myth that, you know, if you're a feminist, you can be into fashion or you're very kind of like you're a Birkenstock, kind of like a uh, uh, non-shaving uh, 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 a woman. And, and I wondered kind of like, where did it, this myth came from? And when I started looking, um, I I initially looked at um, the suffrage movement and kind of like early 20th century feminists. And what struck me was how much in the press they got kind of like, oh, these are such beautiful women. And they themselves were so much into fashion and writing about it. And um, so I was like, okay, so where does this come from right? Why are we always uh, think about uh, feminists as anti-fashion while they clearly weren't um And then when I start to dig in, I was like, okay, this is a much more complex story to tell um that uh, and we need to kind of like go away from this myth uh, because I think it's um in the end not very constructive, not to the history, but also not to feminism as a movement itself, because feminism uh, for a long time used fashion as a political tool to their favor. Um, And I think we have a lot to learn, um, you know, even today uh, from their experiences. So kind of like uh, when I got into this project, I kind of like, okay, so let's unpack this myth and let's see what's really going on here and what's uh, the role of fashion in feminism. Um, so that's basically what got me started. <laughs> and you focus, Could you talk a little bit um, before we sort of get
2: into what you looked at, the time frame and the time period? I mean, you also didn't look at like everything about fashion. So <laughs> Right. Um, so um, was there a reason you, cho- you know, you chose that um, sort of 19th century, uh, right. That focus, or could you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. Um, so, um, so the, the kind of like the beginning of, um, of the American movement, at least, um, in the United States is oftentimes, uh, uh, being, uh, ascribed to 1848 and the second Seneca fall convention. And by 1850, we have the bloomer costume, which is kind of like a major, um, Kind of like maybe the first fashion uh event in the movement um that started really as a reform uh a reform dress as a political statement for many of the women's rights advocate in the movement um and it was a big fiasco and a huge failure and a great trauma uh for many of the feminists who came after um so it was really an event and it kind of like and that event really set um, this myth, right, that feminists are anti-fashion. Uh, but by the late 19th century, um, there are new fashions. I mean, the rise of the uh, ready-made industry, which is um, clothes that are what we, most of us are now, uh, get. To, th- those are the clothes we wear. It's clothes that are being uh, made for us, uh, oftentimes in a mass scale, standardized space sizes, not to our own individual body. Um, So, um, but with this rise of industry um, and because of all kind of technological improvements um, and technological um, uh, incentives, right, if you do something on a mass scale, you usually need to simplify patterns. You need to, um, there are some kind of like considerations That really uh, made it possible for feminists and for other women uh, that not necessarily identified as feminists to um, use fashion to their own favor and to kind of like in advance ideas of comfort, of utility, of functionality, of freedom um, that were not um, that were in line with kind of like the mainstream trends and not necessarily as opposing. them, Uh, And it started kind of like a new chapter (laughs) um, in kind of like the relationship between uh, feminism and fashion, which I thought was a good place to start. So I mentioned the bloomer um, in the in my introduction, because I think that's kind of like the story that is more known and more kind of like when when people think about. Um, Right. Feminism and fashion, they either think about the bloomer or the bra burners of the of the 1970s. Um, And I was like, okay, but what's happened in between? Right. (laughs) What other images can we claim as feminist images that relates to fashion? So that was kind of like the way I organized. Uh, the book, that it does move chronologically, but it does focus on those fashionable moments in which women are using fashion to advance those feminist ideas um, that um, are in kind of like between those those two um, signposts of like the myth of the ugly feminist that we used to think about. So you start right, so your
2: first chapter starts right before or before we get into sort of our big suffrage movement, right, in the early 1900s. But you look at sort of the Gibson girl and this sort of new look needed to, and it's interesting, a lot of the um, things you talk about, look at also that allow women to be more, athletic or move more. So can you talk a little bit about um, that first chapter and the Gibson girl and what you were sort of were finding and seeing there?
0: Sure. Yeah. So, um, so the Gibson girl is kind of like becoming um, by the 1890s, um, the most popular image of kind of like what we uh, now uh, identify as the new woman. And the new woman is kind of like a, a very uh, amorphic term. Um, it sometimes uh, do refer to activists and suffragists that fought for women's right. But it really is about a new concept of womanhood and about um, it's often white. It's often middle class. Um, and it's about this new reality of women that are entering uh, education, uh, leisure, the workforce, It is based on um, an illustration by Charles Dana Gibson. So this is why it's the Gibson girl. Um, There were other girls um, in the press of those images, but Gibson really um, become kind of like a success. Um, And it really is becoming kind of like one of the most uh, marketed and commercialized images out there. So like together with, you know, Uncle Sam and Columbia, it's really is kind of like one of the most prominent. Um, images to circulate at the moment. And uh, what makes it so popular is because he depicts um, her as this uh, very young woman, right? Um, She's never depicted as a mother. Uh, She's never depicted um, as even a married woman. So it's a single woman, often college age. He often depicts her in kind of like leisurely uh, sports activities Um, So uh, it's really easy to identify with her kind of like more collegiate image. Um, And she often uh, wears a shirt waist and a skirt, which becomes kind of like the new uh, fashion at the time um, that is very much associated both with Americanism. um, She's becoming kind of like the ideal American girl. Um, so it's really easy to identify through her fashion with this idea of what American girl means, um, and uh, because a shirtwaist, um, in particular, is kind of like becoming this um, all all trend, right? All all around trend. Everybody's wearing it, um, and it crosses races, it crosses classes, it crosses regions. Um, it really is becoming kind of like the thing you wear. And and people are kind of like starting to identify the Gibson girl, which is kind of like an imaginary figure, with uh, the girls that they see on the streets, because everybody looks like a Gibson girl. So that imagery is very much kind of like feeding one, one another. So um, the Gibson girl as an illustration is a very commercialized image, but the fashion industry also kind of like uh, taking on this popularity and marketing shirtwaist as Gibson sh- waist, or this is a Gibson skirt. This is a Gibson, right? Um, because that name sales. Um, so there is this new connection between feminism and, and fashion and commercialization uh, that happening um, that allows women to take those um, Ideas and kind of like wear literally wear them on the body, right? Um, by using a, and using this image to uh, advance their own agendas, whether uh, so for uh, working class women, um, they're using the shirtwaist as a way to, and that most of them, that's what they're doing, they're sewing shirtwaist. Um, but they're making that connection that, like, look, we also. Um, have the right to be Gibson girls and to, you know, be able to have fun and to to go out and ride a bicycle. Um, and we have, and by wearing the shirtwaist is a way of for them to say we are, we deserve our right vote as women, but also as workers. Um, and um, for African American women, for example, um, this Again, this connotation with college culture, with more uh, middle class respectability allows them, again, to make claims for racial equality and for inclusion in this American culture by saying, here, look at us. We are also Gibson girls. So they might not um, necessarily take on the term, uh, but they will definitely take on the fashion. And, um, and they look like Gibson girls. So they're black Gibson girls. And that allows them to say, here, look at us. We're like, we're also respectable ladies. And so we deserve rights. Um, so it's this fashion that allows um, for some kind of uh, cross-class and cross-race solidarity uh, that really unites them and creates this new idea of womanhood, Um that uh you know that that comes and challenges the more kind of like uh, fragile, docile uh notion of the true woman um that really was kind of like her goal was to become a mother and uh and to kind of like stay at home, but these women are going out in the world and um you know trying to make their own lives.
2: But and you like throughout the book, you you sort of look at the importance of fashion in class and race as well, and how at these moments that you've chosen or these events that you've chosen, um really even if we have not previously thought about or looked at it, that they really do push um uh, for racial equality and class equality in, in some very important ways.
0: Yes, and, and, and one of the things that enables them to do that is the fact that it, there is this rise of this new uh, mass culture and mass industry that allows more people to um, to participate in the fashion world in ways that were not available to them before, When we think about uh, fashion, when we go, you know, to museums and to, um, we think about those right, very luxurious um, dresses by Worth, and um, that were only available to really the very rich. Um, You know, buying a dress, laundering a dress, was uh, something that uh, we don't think about it now, but it's actually a lot of work, and um, so only the rich can. were able to kind of like participate in changing fashions um, because they were able to go and buy and to wear, you know, more than one dress a day or a week or a month. Um, and uh, and but suddenly, uh, with the rise of the of the of the industry, um, you can be fashionable without investing these sums of money, without needing to go to Paris to buy you know, to buy the dresses in the fashion because um, the shirtwaist was this ready-made item um, that, you know, you can add some lace to it or some uh, embroidery or something like that. And, uh, and they were relatively cheap. I mean, you could buy, they weren't in, like for, they were in very different quality. So like a shirtwaist at a, shirt a middle class, a woman would buy or or get made was not in the same quality that a working class uh, woman would have. But the style was very di- was very similar. Um, So even if there was a lot of turnout uh, with those shirts, you could look fashionable without investing a lot of some money. And that was allow women who were uh, previously prohibited from participating in this fashion world to be part of it and to have a say in it and to say here look we are also kind of like participating in this we also have a say in this and that enabled um and because we all wear clothes right um that enabled kind of like these women roots to for for their activism in ways that were not open to them you know they couldn't vote they can um most of them were barred from positions of power but by by be able to buy this shirtwaist that looks like um, maybe it's not, you know, in the best quality, but it looks like the one who uh, this very rich lady wears, you can make, start to make kind of like argument, well, I'm part of it too. And so I, I also entitled to the rights uh, that this rich lady has.
2: Um and so like we've got this sort of Gibson girl this rides of you know this fashion and then um your next chapter moves into this to the women's rights movement right um and and some of the things we think about often like wearing white and that but also other issues and other ways in which fashion was really important to sort of this feminist ideology so can you talk a little bit about that and what you found um in that movement. Sure. So
0: so again, as I said, um uh, uh, feminists in the twentieth century um are younger, are are kind of like most of them are young women, um kind of like the old generation is dying out. Um and uh and, and as young women, they're kind of they're into fashion, right? Um, because that's that's what young people do. Uh but there's but they're really and as I said, the bloomer is really a trauma to some degree. Um, in the movement and they kind of like and they they really understand that they need to sell suffrage right they need to convince men to pass this amendment Um, and in order to do that they need to be appealing they need to sell it and it's not just about what they're saying it's also about what they look like and they need to kind of like you know to be appealing to the men that they're trying to convince um and they're very um kind of like uh uh they're very savvy about it i mean they they really implement a lot of the things that now we think are kind of like oh yeah of course political campaigns runs like that but uh they were actually the first one who really understand kind of like uh the power of, of images and advertising um and in political campaigns and they really um makes it a uh, part of their message Um, And it's not only kind of like, right, the use of colors and kind of like understanding that, right, our images is going to be in the press. So we need to kind of like create this very visual um, appealing images, which you can do with white dresses or very bright dresses, because most of the pictures are black and white. Um, So that contrast worked well for them. Um, There are other reasons they're choosing white, but there are also... um, uh, taking kind of like the mainstream styles and part of their arguments is that not only that suffrage is not going to masculinize women, right? Because here we are, so beautiful women up to the trends. um, We're kind of like, uh, we bring this uh, fashionable taste to politics. Um, But another thing that they kind of like uh, emphasize is that by following fashion um they're not they're not just following fashions right they're not just doing what the designers say they have like they're cultivating their own sense of style their own sense of 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 fashion and that is really an indic- indicative to what they will do with the vote they don't they're not just going to vote whatever people tell them to do but the way they cultivate their own style That's how they're gonna cultivate, you know, their decision, and to vote. So, so it helps them to kind of like convince people. Look, we are kind of like good citizens. We can bring this, you know, fashion and order and style into politics, um, while still maintaining kind of like our independence um, of mind. The way we choose our dresses, that's the way we're gonna choose our politicians. Um, So, fashion really becomes. an important tool, uh, for the suffragists. Um, but they really are kind of like, you know, but they're also thinking about, um, again, uh, they need to march in streets, right? So, uh, they need dresses that can actually, um, enable that. So, uh, skirts getting shorter a little, you know, they're mid-calf, um, maybe not our, uh, definition of short, but, um, but they are shorter. The circumference of the of the dress is is lighter um, and narrower. So uh, they have pockets, which will become kind of like a, a very big uh, feminist uh, statement to have pockets um, in your dress, because pockets um, say that you know this dress is functional and um, it's not just for beauty. Um, so all those little things are also kind of like, yes, that's what they're enabled them to march in city streets that are often dirty and, you know, really gross. (laughs) Right. Uh, So that's kind of like a functional way, but it's also a way for them to show here, look, we're not going against fashion. We're actually are kind of like showing you what a good voter can look like. Um, And it works. I mean, uh, the press is really um, supporting them. They're kind of like saying here, yes, this new generation of suffragists they're not like their mothers. Um, they look good. They, they, you know, they're very attractive women. Um, and we, maybe we should give them the vote because they know what they're doing.
2: Yeah. I, um, I appreciated the pot, like reading the pockets. I laughed because we still are arguing, right. Women are still like, we these fake pockets or the non like we need pockets we still need pockets so I was kind of like yes they're still making these similar arguments about like what we need in women's fashion um and I thought it was interesting too like you talk about the shorter skirts or being able to march um and some of the argument is that uh, for health reasons right we need it so it's it, it's like also. Th- thinking a lot about how fashion can impact health and wellness. um, Right. Also, you know, with the bicycle girls and all of that, but also with like, we can't march, we're going to get sick. This, You know, the clothing is going to literally make us sick. So that's really interesting too. And thinking about.
0: Yeah. And, 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 you know, and uh, uh, at this point of time, it's also kind of like shifting from corsets to bras and bras did, uh, you know, uh, I know it It sounds uh, weird for 21st century, but bras were an improvement um, and were looked at as a kind of like a more liberating um, uh, item than corsets. But part of the reason was right. Like before we argue for, you know, political equality, we need to breathe. We need to be able to walk. We need pockets. Like that's kind of like the fundamentals before we can even imagine on kind of like to think about more philosoph- philosophical or more kind of like you know abstract rights, um, like voting. Like we need to be able to walk and breathe. Um, and so, so, so clothes do become kind of like uh, more um, convenient, more comfortable. Um, part and. Partly, as I said, like, it's not just because the industry, I mean, the industry do look for consumers. So the industry kind of like becoming some form of an ally um, in that regards, because for them, it's kind of like, okay, if all these women are going to buy these dresses with pockets, we might as well want to make dresses with pockets, right? um. But um, but the industry wants to make money. And, 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 and the industry goes along with this simplifications of fashion because it's cheaper to make. Um, it's much more easier to standardize according to sizes. So kind of like what, once we kind of like move to the 20s um, and, and the flapper uh, 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 fashions and that are more kind of like really rectangular and very simple and look, um, it is also like the industry embraces it because it's cheaper to make. Um, uh, so it's easier to make and and they can do it. So it's not like that, you know, there are some people in like a room in the, in the, in the, of the fashion industry that decide, yeah, let's, let's be feminist. This is not happening because of that. Uh, but there is consumer pressure um, that, that does, that aligns with also other, interest of the industry, that they say, yeah, that's kind of like, yeah, we can do that. Um, and and women take advantage of that um, to some degree. And when the industry tries to push something that they don't like, women pushes back. <laughs> I mean, and as you said, we're still fighting for pockets, so... <laughs>
2: Pushback, um, like you you mentioned, like your your next chapter is sort of on the flappers, and which is kind of also I I think often becomes like the, the the focal point of sort of American fashion. But you talk a lot about how um. Like this movement in the 20s, for various reasons, was there was a lot of pushback by, um, yo- especially younger women, about what we're going to wear or what we're not going to wear. Um, so, could you talk a little bit about that, the flappers and and some of that pushback? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So, so again, you know, by the 20s and and those changes, uh, you know, they're not like everybody waking up in January 1st, 1920, and and moving into Uh, Flapper dresses, I mean, changes are uh, happening, uh, you know, starting with the war where, you know, with women mobilization to the war. And again, this need to make them uniform, to make uh, 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 a clothes that will be utilitarian, that will be functional. Um, So that kind of like pushes on and um, and the flapper. And again, like these women have the vote now. Um, it's the young generation, this rise of new youth culture that's saying, Yeah, I'm gonna do whatever I want, right? Um, I'm not gonna listen to my parents anymore. Um, this world has died um in the war to some degree. Um, so they're starting to push back. Um, these these and and these fashions are youthful. Um there is this cult of youth. Um, and that that, you know. Uh, who doesn't want to look younger, right? So a lot of older women also kind of like joining this. Um, and um, and those changes, I mean, they do sometimes feel overnight because once you um, get rid of your, you know, your undergarments um, and wearing this very light clothes all of a sudden and then cut your hair, um, you often lose, uh, you know, 10 pounds overnight. That's a big change, you know, to wake up minus 10 pounds and then walk in the world. It's a different experience. Um, so the change was kind of like for, for the individual woman, very sudden, right? Once you cut your hair. Um, but uh, but if you look at it, it is kind of like this um, more gradual that, bec- that begins um, in the mid-teens by these radical feminists um, who kind of like more bohemian and more kind of like on the fringe of the society. But by the 20s, those fashion becomes the mainstream. The industry adopts them. And the industry, again, kind of like, hey, we can sell that. Um, and women do embrace it. And uh, But the industry needs change to survive. That's how the fashion industry, change, you know, works. Uh but women says, "No, like this is like this works for me. Like I'm I'm good. Like that's like let's stay with these fashions. These are great for us." And the industry's like, "Wait, wait a minute. Like we need to really convince people to buy new clothes because otherwise like what are we doing?" Right? Um so the industry in the end of the day do try to push for longer skirts and and they get a lot of pushback. Um uh from women and from feminists who really interpret it as this, um, attack on their freedoms, not just their kind of like what skirts I need, I, I can wear, but also their political freedoms, their right to vote. And they, and, and these women really connects kind of like, we have the right to vote. So why, like, why do you need, why do you think you can tell me kind of like what should I wear? Like I am an independent, uh, voter so i can decide also what to wear and women really pushed back pushed back and the industry kind of like gives in to some degree i mean there is compromise uh clothes for evening wear do uh get longer at the end of the decade but um but shirt could survive and this idea that you know that clothes need to serve the person who wears it and not vice versa um, that idea really survives, and you know, and the depression also helps you know people buy just less clothes during the depression um it's It's not the most urgent thing right to to renew your wardrobe. um so that kind of like prolongs uh the fashions also a little um but but this idea of kind of like yes, that women are not gonna take you know uh designer's decree anymore. Um Just because they're coming from Paris, or just because the industry pushes the style, like we're gonna do it because it works for us. And that idea really stays um, throughout um, the 20th century even kind of like longer, even if the the fashion themselves changes.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: Yeah, I appreciate you have... I mean, there's illustrations throughout the book, right? But one of the ones I really loved was um, you have one with um, the the change in this ch- chapter, the changing of the flapper yeah. girl skirts. So it's like for 10, right? Because we do often think like fashion's going to happen quickly, um, but it kind of shows how it, it sort of changes um, in these increments over the years and goes up and down and <laughs> <Right. laughs> it kind <of> moves around, <laughs> which is great. And um, also with the flap, like you also talk a lot about how um, African-American women use sort of this Um, idea of the flapper girl to sort of make um, some political and social statements as well.
0: Um, So could you talk a little bit about that too? Sure. So, um, so yeah, I mean, flappers, uh, black flappers and white flappers, right? Or um, other women of color are really kind of like buying into this new promises of this new youth culture, right? We have cars and we have movie theaters and all those uh, fun stuff when we think about Roaring Twenties, and uh, and and again, this availability of um, of those styles to much more to to this larger populations enabled African American to also claim that image to say, hey, we're flapper too. We're also entitled to be part of this youth culture. Um, and to uh, and to be as equal in that, and it is also a moment when a lot of young uh, African American women are moving to the north, right? And they're moving by themselves as part of this great migration. Um, so it's a way for them to kind of like cultivate this, you know, their own identity, their own modern identity. Um, they're oftentimes single; they're not always kind of like under the supervising eye of a mother or the church, or their employer. Um, and the fashion is a way for them to participate in, in this new youth culture that they want to be part of, and they think it's part, you know, their right to be part of, right? But um, because of those racist uh, stereotypes, uh, that they need to be careful, they need to maintain uh, this notion that there are respectable girls, that they are not um, promiscuous, that they are not... Um, There is this tension. So they kind of like their challenge is both kind of like vis-a-vis the white society and saying, yes, we like this is racial equality and we're, you know, we black flappers are just the same as white flappers. But it also against kind of like more the elders and more conservative forces in the black community um, that say, well, maybe you shouldn't wear such short skirts. Maybe you shouldn't wear, you know, uh, such... Revealing clothes, and they say no. We have the right to do it. That doesn't makes us promiscuous. That doesn't makes us, you know, um, not not good girls, right? We can wear uh, what we want um, and and be in fashion and be part and be equal to our white peers uh, without kind of like uh, threatening uh, the community itself. So. So they have kind of like a more um, delicate negotiation, both within uh, their own communities but uh, and outside, um, and they're kind of like using uh, this uh, this fashion to kind of, but to claim their own, they're kind of like, yes, we have the right to do it, right? Um, and, uh, and that's part of kind of like what it means to be a modern woman, to be an independent woman. Um, so... Um, so I think for them, it's, and, and again, it's part of kind of like being in this youth culture that really challenges um, uh, the older generation. Um, and, and in communities of immigrants, it's oftentimes also kind of like brings all kind of debates between parents who are like, uh, are less comfortable with that, that culture. Uh, but young women say, no, that's part of being an American. We're part of this American culture and we want to stay in it.
2: And so another thing that you you know you look at throughout, but then you really focus on in one chapter is sort of like design and the designers, and it's it's always interesting to to be reminded. Like uh, I I'm I think it might have been in chapter three, but y- you talk about Lane Bryant, right? And um like Lane Bryant was a person, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and not just like a line of clothes. But this idea of like who these designers were and sort of. Using that um, as, politi- as sort of poli- in politics and that small p politics, but so can you talk a little bit about um, what you were seeing with sort of the power of design and sort of the sort of professional f- like fashion networks?
0: Yeah, so um, so the beginning of the of the twentieth century, or even up until the mid twentieth century. Um, the fashion industry is a very welcoming place for women. Um, and it's a place where women can really have a say. Um, and, um, uh, uh, both because, you know, it seems like, Oh, women are kind of like better at that they have a better sense of style. They know what women's want. And it's not like a threatening, uh, a branch of the industry so much. It's not, um, it's not like they're taking away male's power to some degree. Um, I, I mean, they do take, but kind of like it seemed like it's a better thing to do that than in like the car industry, right? Um, and so it's a, a place for them uh, to get more easily into positions of power. Um, the The 20s are kind of like the height of women's designers. You know, we all think about Coco Chanel, you thought, you know, Lane Bryant, right? All those uh, people who used to be people, right? (laughs) Um, um, That are now kind of like big corporations. Um, But, um, and and part of the reason is that you don't need a lot of money to start a, 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 a couture business or to start designing clothes. You just need a sewing machine. Um, basically, so it's a it's a route for women to gain economic um, independence um, in a way that is easier for them than to kind of like start a business, right? Um, so women are really uh, beginning to get into that industry, and because the American industry is very much uh, based on wholesale and retail, and not so much on. Um, On couture design, that's kind of like the Paris, right? Even though that even in Paris, it's kind of like women are becoming the main uh, designers of this period. Um, But retail design, they can, they're fairly anonymous up until the 30s and 40s. Um, Nobody knows who designed, like, you know, you often, right, you don't know who designed the clothes for H&M. Like you just go to the store and buy it. Um, So it's easier for them, both for, um, white women, but also for African-American women, because nobody knows who's designing it. So um, employers are more kind of like uh, willing to hire these people um, to work in those industries. Uh, but by the 30s, um, and again, the Great Depression, uh, there's an economic need for, um, to convince women to buy clothes. And uh, Dorothy Shaver uh, from Lord & Taylor, she's uh, a newly vice president of of uh, Lord and & Taylor. And again, like she's a woman and she's becoming this very high position in the company. And she comes up with this idea, look, we need to push kind of like to convince women to buy clothes. So she started this campaign, American Fashion for American Women, kind of like starting this idea of like, look, buy domestic design because that's the patriotic way thing to do, right? To uh, to help the economy, to like, this is what you can do um, to save our country, right? To buy new clothes. Um, and in her campaign, she really started to, um, to publicize the names of the designers and kind of like really uh, making them a celebrity, uh, to some degree. Um, and to say, Hey, look, r- right. Um, Paris is always kind of like in the background and Paris was always the source of styles, but by the thirties, um, there is kind of like more uh, looking inward because it's expensive to go to Paris It's expensive to get, you know, to buy an, a licensed, um, we're starting to get into copyrights, um, issues. Um, so it's much easier for the industry to rely on domestic design, but you need to convince women who were told all their lives that, you know, only Paris can manufacture fashions. Um, why is it better to buy American design? And by World War Two, this becomes a necessity because Paris, you know, once uh, parents falls into the Nazis regime, that's it. Like uh, there's no connection with Paris anymore. And the industry is basically on its own. Um, So uh, there is this push um, and mainly for kind of like this idea of like, these are clothes that are made by women for women because women knows what the American woman needs. Um, And, and it is again, this idea of comfort, this idea of like this woman on the go that needs kind of like comfortable clothing that And really, the 40s is where we get all those, you know, the things that we're still with us today. Um, You know, leotards, uh, ballet flats, zippers, um, belts, um, all those um, tiny things. Layers, layering is another concept that is being introduced um in the 40s that kind of like if you're out and about all day you need you know your clothes to be suited for the weather that might change um or you need to pack kind of like you know this uh, uh versatile wardrobe that in seven items you can have like an entire combination of wardrobe so all those concepts that are very much um connected to the reality of, of depression and war are also connected to, to to this idea that we need to find um, design language that will really sell this idea of freedom, this idea of movement, this idea of functionality, because that's what women want. And we need to, to design not to this ideal woman uh, that French designers thinks that this is the woman, but to the real American women who, you know, works in factories or need to go to get a job, or raising children, or hosting dinners in their homes. These are the real women that uh, we design for, and we need clothes that will suit for them. Yes,
2: I, I love that. Even though we think it's like, you know, this new thing, like sportswear and leisure wear, it's like what we've always wanted. <laughs> and then someone tells you you want something else and then leisure wear costs like tons of money after, right? Now we have a right? Like, like, yes, but like, we've always wanted leisure wear <laughs>
0: Right, it's not just in the pandemic that we started to wear leggings. It's like it's always been. Uh, Yeah, and
2: you know, and another thing. I mean, this is not the leisure word, but another thing that I I thought like throughout this is is kind of interesting is like all the ways in which um, different spaces in society were were. Are always attempting to police women and women's fashion, right? It makes me think of the continued debate about girls, especially young girls in school, and because it's usually about what girls should and should not wear, right? Um, but there is this sort of theme um, throughout a lot of this, and and thinking as we move into your final chapter on sort of the women's rights movement about this policing of women's what women can and cannot wear and why they should and should not wear certain things.
0: (laughs) Right, and women are pushing back against that. And for them, you know, right, the ability to say, no, this is what I want to wear and I don't care what, you know, other people say and I'm not willing to be policed. um, That's for them not less important than be able to vote or equal pay for equal right, right? It's about like, I want to appear in public in the way that I think is fit for me. Um, And not the way, you know, my parents, my uh, community leaders, my, you know, city hall sometimes, right? We have um, in the 20s, all kind of uh, city ordinance that um, are regulating women bathing suits and kind of like the cover of my book is like a a picture of a policeman kind of like measuring uh, the space between the bathing suit and the knee. and all of these women are kind of like really understanding that fashion does become kind of like a political arena right um that uh that it's a, what they wear is is oftentimes a cover up for kind of like what they can do in public or what they can say in public so kind of like that's that's kind of like the first line of defense right like if you if we can uh choose what we wear and how do we appear in public kind of like you cannot tell us also the other things that are might more important um but it's a way for them to kind of like really understand that this is not just about kind of like what's in fashion this is really kind of like where politics are being played out right and and that sort of moves us into those like that that
2: 1960s and 70s right this the 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 myth of the bra, bra burner right and this idea of what is it like women's lib and fashion and what that means and 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 you title that chapter this is what a feminist looks like which i think is we still are talking about that um so can you talk a little bit about what fashion wise was going on in the seventies. That was really important.
0: Yeah. And, and I think, you know, uh, it it is important to remind people that yeah, no bras were ever burned. (laughs) Um, in that very famous, um, uh, demonstration against Miss America. Uh, but, uh, but, but again, this notion of choice is really becoming, uh, uh, central to feminism in, in the 60s and 70s. And it's, you know, it's reproductive choice. It's There's a lot of choice, right? But it's also the choice of how you present yourself. And again, uh, there's certainly gendered critique and there's certainly uh, feminists who think like, no, we should not just abide to this fashion industry that oftentimes, you know, objectified women, uh, sexualized them. So we don't need to play to that, you know, things, and they do uh, try to kind of like uh, devise their own style of what does it mean to be a feminist and what does it mean to be a woman. Um, And for some, it means to wear jeans and to, you know, to not uh, uh, highlight their feminine traits. Um, You know, lesbian feminists are kind of like going into this dyke fashion um, as they uh, describe it that are more kind of like button down shirts, jeans, uh, but not all feminists subscribe to it. And not all feminists think that, uh, you know, we need like that we need to give up so easily uh, the fun of dressing up. Um, and for some feminists, you know, the miniskirts, which is very hyper sexualized item, but they can celebrate their sexuality without, you know, give a uh without everybody that's part of their sexual liberation so so there is this debate about um kind of like uh how you can use clothes but not a lot of feminists and that's kind of like i think the myth goes think that oh we should kind of like end the discussion and kind of like this is this is only kind of like distracts us from you know the important stuff that we're fighting for no for a lot of feminists this is part of this this personal is political right the way you dress is very personal and it can be and was a political statement so there's a lot of thinking about what should be the feminist style and what should be kind of like what should we wear to kind of that will align with our politics and a lot of the intra debates within uh, feminists, black feminists are not so, you know, eager, uh, to give up, uh, claims of femininity. They're kind of like, oh, you might kind of like be happy, um, you know, wearing jeans and, and, you know, making yourself ugly, but like, you know, we don't get any liberation. Black women don't get any liberation from that because that's what we had our entire lives. So, um, so there is this debate, uh, within the feminist movement of kind of like what, how should we present ourselves? And this notion that we need to be able to choose, that that's the, that's the most important thing, that, that it's the choice, right? That um, you know, that we don't need policing, whether it's from other femin- feminists or from uh, the society at large. And that's, that women could be able to choose whether it's a miniskirt, whether it's pants, Right. Um, and those are becoming kind of like the fight. So um, on the one hand, there is this fight of um, of maintaining the mini when the industry pushes for, again, longer length um, in, in a, as a way to kind of like uh, uh, get more money and when pushes back against the meaty. Uh, and they say, no, like, we want to keep the mini. But some women are, like, saying, no, we want to be able to wear pants to work, um, and that should should not get us fired. <laughs> um, um, so, so there is this uh, constant uh, thinking of um, there's not a rejection of fashion, as more as kind of like how can we make a a fashion works for us and kind of like be aligned with our political values and the political uh, messages that we want to convey. Um, So it actually kind of like much more powerful tool than to just burn your bra.
2: (laughs) Yes, right. And we think about I, I mean, I, there are most retired, but there are women, um, at who've retired from my university who are still alive, who have told the story of when they finally got to wear pants to work. Right. And that is a big, that's a big deal. And so like, yes, yeah, so I think we often think about fashion as like the culture, like Fran, you know, like these kind of like, we're going to look to Paris or Milan or wherever, but like, Getting to wear pants to work is a political statement, is a fashion statement. And if they have pockets, it's even better. better.
0: Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, even, even in places, and again, kind of like only in 1993, which is not so long ago, uh, women were allowed to wear pants to Congress, on Congress floor, right? Um, We think like now when we see Kamala Harris, right, where, or you know Hillary Clinton, who made the pantsuit her own uh, trademark, um, this is kind of like, oh, this is how women politicians were, right? This is how women lawyers were. But no, it was a very big struggle for them to to get to that point. And 1990s is like, it's not a long time ago. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like, and, I mean, and you sort of, um, you have your epilogue sort of gets at that, like that idea of like that, fashion is still, um, sort of challenging and pushing and making impact. And even within the feminist, like you talk about even within the feminist movement itself. Um, so you want to, I mean, I don't know if you have anything you want to talk about with where you see fashion going or, um, like how you kind of see fashion impacting feminism even now and today.
0: Um, yeah, I think, I think fashion is still kind of like something that, that we're certainly aware of and, you know, and, and, and the last two years, if anything, right, um, have changed drastically the way we wear, what we wear, um, you know, all of us moved to leggings and loungewear, um, uh, for a while. There's a big question where women ever be back to the bra. I mean, I think they will, but, um, unfortunately, but again, it will look differently, uh, just because, uh suddenly right um uh we got like everybody sitting from home. It's like, why should I buy nice clothes? Like where should I have to go out, right, anymore. So uh, I do think we we're, we're gonna see um some changes in the way we wear with the way we dress. Um but also I think uh political movements uh that we have now and political um struggles um are also kind of like understanding, kind of like that, yeah, images do work. Um, And how do we uh, think about images? So we think, you know, uh, now that our masks are becoming kind of like this, right, uh, this political canvas, you can write your message on the the mask. And I think that has become really a political use um, that we see lately. We see women politicians. Um, really working um, uh, the fashion card really well in Congress. Maybe not everybody likes uh, that, uh, but I think, you know, uh, people like AOC, like Christian Cinema, they really understand, look, fashion is part of our tools, right? And if we're going to be judged on how we look, so let's use it to our favor. Um, So that's part of kind of like, their uh, political strategy and, and it also, you know, also men, right? Raphael Warnock, um, uh, Adams from uh, New York city. There are men who really kind of like doing interesting thing with fashion. And I think people are kind of like more um, uh, are used to kind of like, because we think about fashion, it's such an individual choice an individual expression of our identity um, people understand that it's important, right that that it is political um so you know, I'm better at what happened than to <laughs> foresee the future um but I do think that the pandemic really made us rethink kind of like how do we how like what do we wear and how do we present ourselves that we're gonna see changes.
2: So we've been talking for a while um, and we I could probably talk to you about fashion for longer. But um, my final question is always, if you have anything else, either you're working on or anything with, the, I know the book is, does it just come out or, right? So if there's anything that you're doing with promotion with the book. So if there's any last sort of shout out you, you want to, you know, talk about.
0: Um yeah, so i uh, the book is available uh, in the shops or where you buy your books um uh, either through Amazon or to the press illinois press um and uh and yes, there are some events uh, coming up uh where I talk about the book uh the question how many of them are going to be I was like kind of like looking for it for it to be in person, but I think now. Uh, some of them are going to be online. So you can check my website, which is Um It's one word and it's a long word. Um, but uh, for future events and links uh, for more uh, online or remote events, at least. Um, but yeah, and, you know, and Fashion is part of our, I think, everyday life. So that's, and I think that's part of kind of like what I was trying to get in the book that we really need to think about it as an everyday feminist practice, right? And that feminism happening, not just through organizing or not just through official movements, but also kind of like in the everyday life of people. Um, So, you know, next time you... Yeah, dress in the morning. Think about what you want to say to the world. <laughs> <laughs> it has
2: been wonderful talking with you again, Anav Rubinovich who is the author of Dressed for Freedom, The Fashionable Politics of American Feminism. Thanks for talking with me.
0: Thank you.